The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today using squarespace.com. Use the promo code CANDIDFRAME at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. This is X, and this is The Candid Frame. When I came of age, the idea of journalism was still a noble pursuit. Coming up in the age of Woodward and Bernstein, I thought that telling a story in words and pictures was not only an exciting career, but one in which you could provide an important public service. Now, in an age where people rely more on Facebook posts than newspapers for their news, it can feel a little disheartening to believe in the important role that the Fifth Estate plays in a free, democratic society. But thankfully, there are young photographers like Hannah Reyes Morales who are demonstrating that there are still those who see journalism not only as a worthwhile career, but also a necessary one. The Philippine-born photographer has largely made Southeast Asia her beat, but her work has taken her to different parts of the world. Though still in her mid-twenties and in the early stages of her career, she's already become a wonderful example of what today's 21st century photojournalist is evolving to be. Well, Hannah, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a real pleasure, pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. I'm really honored to, to be part of this. You know, it's really interesting that you know you're a travel photographer you're a photojournalist you've traveled all over the world and yet when you were growing up as a kid you were fairly isolated you, i've heard you talk about that the area in which you sort of grew up in it was sort of like a five mile radius tell me about you know living in such sort of sort of an insular world and how that may have inspired you to want to become a world traveler and a, and a photographer um, so I, I grew up in Manila, um, uh, the messy bits of Manila, and I grew up in a house of about maybe 13 or 14 people. And I actually didn't have my own bed until I was about, I think, 16 when I moved out of the house. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so, and, and I think my mom was very, she's a very anxious woman, so she was also very scared of allowing me to leave the house. So I would just always stay inside and explore indoors. I remember when I was little, I would even play with like the roots of the trees growing in our yard and I, I would call them my pets. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my world was really, really tiny growing up. Um, and then one day I discovered a pile of her life magazines and her National Geographic magazines. And I, I really I saw them, I, I always say this, but when I, when I was younger, I saw like other countries, I saw these places as, as like outer, as I saw outer space. So I never thought I'd be able to actually see them in real life. And so when I, when I realized that I could, as soon as I had my camera, um, I tried to pull together all that I could just to just kind of see, see what else was out there. 
you said you were living with 16 people. How many of those were, were siblings and how many of them were extended family? It was actually maybe 13 or 14. Um, most of it was extended family. So um, my nuclear family is just me and my mom. So I grew up with just my mom. And then um, a bunch of cousins were living there, uncles, aunts, um, my grandparents, and my nanny, my nanny, who I call nanai, which is the Filipino word for mom. So when every time my mom was at work, um, she was my constant growing up, even if the house was full. She was really the one I was with most of the time growing up. Once you start seeing those magazines, were you sort of inspired to, to want to go out and travel? And, you know, was that sort of an itch that you just couldn't wait to get out and explore? I think it developed slowly because when I first saw it, you just don't think that you know, that, that stuff is possible. It's obviously for someone else, you know, it's not for you. Um, and then I remember when I was 14, I went to a bookstore and I saw a book by Annie Griffiths and she had written about her life as a National Geographic photographer. I I think it was then that I, I really, really started to dream. I was looking at, you know, the everyday life of a photographer and then I realized, oh, they're, they're human too. (laughs) When I, when I first got my camera, I think that's when I really started to, to think, think um, about the actual logistics of trying to be a photographer. But that didn't happen until much later on. So how did you, how did, so how did you make, that, make that happen for yourself? I got my camera actually when I was about 18. It happened because my, my mom felt I had a break, my first breakup. And my mom would see me cry. So, you know, we, we weren't from a, a well-to-do family. So I think it really took her a while to save up to get me a camera. And, and she finally did. So I always say that my camera is actually my second boyfriend. <laughs> and then so I started um, messing around with it. And then um, I, in college, I took a class, uh, an elective on photojournalism. And my professor, luckily, um, was the, the chief photographer of EPA. And he was just, he saw how enthusiastic I was. So he let me get on an internship that summer. Um, so he allowed me to do all these things that I think most interns nowadays aren't really allowed to do. He just kind of threw me out there and let me be a wire photographer. And he knew that I didn't know how to do it. He just kind of let me find out by myself. And EPA is a, is a news agency? Yeah, a European Press Photo Agency. Okay. Yeah, it's like similar to Reuters. And after that, I got, I fell really in love with it even more. Um, it was really tiring and it, it, I was in a constant state of like panic because I didn't know what I was doing. But then I started thinking of ways to continue being a photographer. So for the longest time, I was reselling vintage clothes. I was like buying clothes from from the secondhand markets, washing them and selling them online um, just to kind of support my photography. For a while, I was working in a bar as a a bar photographer. So the, the restaurant could tag customers and, you know, use it for their promotion. I was doing that. Um, every weekend, my shift was from 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. in college. And then I was selling shoes. I was doing all these things to try to be a photo- to just kind of like fund the work. And then eventually I got a grant from National Geographic. And I think after that, um, a lot of doors opened. Well, t- well, tell me about those first you know, forays into photojournalism. You said, you know, you did feel felt like you didn't know what you were doing. It was kind of scary. But what was what was it about it specifically that you found so 
intoxicating? I think just for the longest time, I was just always told, you know, I was growing up in a very traditionally Filipino household. We were taught, you know, the values that we had growing up were obedience and, you know, following what your parents tell you. And then when I became a photojournalist or when I started, when I was being taught to be a photojournalist, I was doing the opposite. Um, I, I felt like I was being allowed to do all these things that, that were always forbidden. Um, you know, like my my boss, my mentor, Dennis, you know, he let me do assignments and, and terrified my mom seeing that I was covering um, demolitions and wearing, you know, bulletproof vests and a Kevlar helmet. Um, but she knew that I had to do it for school, which is what I told her <laughs> why, why I was doing it. Um, so, so there were all these things that I was suddenly allowed to do that I, I never, um, I was never allowed to do before. I was riding um, helicopters. I was riding. I was just doing all these like crazy things that, that I, I never thought that that um, I could possibly do. So I think in the beginning, that's what that's what it was. And then eventually, it grew into into something else, you know, and as, as you learn more about photography and really read up on it, then it becomes more than just like the thrill of it or the travel. It becomes more about like the story. Yeah. So that, that really um, was a pivotal point for me, I think. You know, growing up in a conserv- conservative household, and I know that you also went to Catholic school, is mm-hmm. like, all of that sort of indoctrinates you into and being respectful of authority, of not questioning authority, of just doing what yeah. you're told to do. And mm-hmm. how much of being a photojournalist has been basically getting comfortable with doing the opposite of basically what you, what you were sort of trained to do as a, as a kid and as a young adult? Actually, it hasn't, it's only been recently that I've been, I can say that I've been comfortable to be questioning things and to to be more, even being more assertive, actually. Um, until I moved out of the Philippines, I, I was still very, I was still trying to, to conform, I think, internally. Um, Filipinos are very good at kind of like having, um, like conflicting like internal beliefs and action. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was doing that for a really long time. And I was, I was um, less confrontational. Um, and it hasn't been until, until I moved to Cambodia and I had to deal with um, a more international international community that I was really able to find that assertiveness and to be able to to really like be sure of myself and be sure of what I was saying um, and I think it, it really took a while like internally to, to feel comfortable with that because you're just there you know you, you grow up you grow up and it's just there every day you just do as you're told you know you pray two times in every single subject, um, you know, before before class and after class, like we were just following all the rules. And I was never even one of the kids who didn't follow the rules. I had like a perfect record. <laughs> um, so it really took me a while to realize that or to internalize that other persona that didn't have to obey the rules all the time. And it's only been very recently did you find that there was that there was a story or a series of stories that you were assigned to do uh, while you were living in Cambodia that really required you to, you know, move past your comfort level in terms of doing just that, in terms of pushing, in terms of questioning authority, of, of not simply taking no for an answer? 
I think it was not necessarily in Cambodia that that happened. I think it was happening slowly through time. Um, and, and in journalism, I think, you know, like a huge part of the job, what I'm learning now is, you know, it's not actually the taking of the photographs, but the process of getting yourself into the position where you can take photographs. And that requires a lot of line stepping and kind of like trying out different buttons to push until until you get in. So um, I think it was just the process of trying to get better and better stories that not, not better and better stories, but the process of working on more stories that this happened for me slowly. And then it just, I think it just kind of happened organically um, because you're just thinking, okay, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to do for the story. So you kind of like sneak in to places or kind of like try to talk yourself into different situations. And those are things that I never would have done before. So it, it's just the nature of the job that kind of... It fell into, I fell into it. Well, one of the stories that uh, brought you to my attention was your uh, series on Raised by the Ring, in which you were photographing uh, young boys that are uh, participating in the boxing culture in, in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about how you came upon that story? And, and for people who haven't seen the images, if you can sort of uh, briefly tell us what, what it's about. Um, so I, I found a group of young boys uh, as young as four, four years old that were participating in Kun Khmer, um, which is similar to Muay Thai. Um, so I found this story. I was working on an, a completely different story, but still, it's still a boxing story. And I, before, before the, the, the main event that I had to photograph, there was a fight between two kids that were really, really tiny. And I internally, you know, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Um, so I had to know more and I had to, I had to find out about, about these kids. Were there more of them? How many are they? What, what's going on in there? Um, or is that, is that legal? <laughs> you know, things like that. I found it while covering another story. And then after, after doing that, I came back and tried to get access and then later on found this gym where this man was, you know, he had, he, he said that he had nothing else to give his children. So he wanted to teach them boxing. And then the whole community decided that they wanted to send their young boys to this man as well to learn boxing so that the kids would be more disciplined, you know, stay out of trouble and do other things, do like, sorry, do something that, you know, something routine and they see it as a way for their children to be more occupied and more obedient. Um, so I, I, I stayed there and I, I went to to some of the, the fights. And it was it was actually one of those stories that was just just fun to photograph. Um, the kids were just so so amazing to be with. What did you find out? Is it is it illegal? Is it you know a gray area? What tell us more about that that, that culture? Um, so. So it's illegal in the large TV networks, um, but what I found out was that a lot of them falsify their papers because when they come of age and when they're when they're old enough to look a certain age, they they falsify their papers so that they can get into the fights and make more money. Um, but for it's one of those things that they do in the province. So they do it on special events. They they allow the kids to fight, and then the whole um, the whole village or the whole community they pull together some money um, to to give as a reward to the winner. But they always declare both 
well, from the fights that I've watched, they've declared both both the kids as winners. Um, so it's still very, very nurturing. And when I came into the story, I think I was looking at it thinking, oh, maybe this is a, this is a child labor story. You know, I was like looking at it from a very um, newsy perspective. Um, and then as I came in to work on the story a little bit more, I realized that there was much more to it. Um, and this was just a kind of boyhood that existed in this part of the world that I just never had an insight about before. So I think that's when it changed for me when I actually stayed with them and trained with them, you know, even visited them in school. And I think that that was that was really one of the the most um, fun fun um, fun pieces that I've had to work with. Well, gaining access is really key to being being able to tell such stories. Was that was that mm-hmm. difficult to? You know, have entree into into the world, not just the training, but the schools and their time with their family. Can you tell us about the, the, what that process was like for you? The access was actually not very difficult in this story. It was pretty. Um, I think also because you know, I'm a I'm a woman. I'm a I'm a brown woman, so I was very like a, a very non threatening entity to them. So they just kind of let me in and they understood what I was doing because I came, they already knew me from when I first watched their fight and they all remember, a bunch of the kids remembered me and I brought, you know, photographs with me and the kids were just so excited because they had all seen um, their, their heroes, you know, be photographed professionally and they knew what, what, what like a, a professional sports photo looked like. So they saw that I had come with these photographs and they saw themselves in it and they were really, really excited and their parents were really, really excited. So that, that bit was kind of easy to, it was really easy after that because they knew me from that one fight and, and they knew me because I, I was already working with some of the female boxers as well. Um, so, so the access of that story was actually pretty, pretty simple. I asked, I asked the school the day before and they allowed me to come into the classroom and see, you know, see what was going on. And in that way, I was kind of like really spoiled, I think, because in Cambodia, um, like people are very open with things like that. And how, how is that different from the culture that you came up with in, in, in the Philippines in terms of gaining, gaining access to photograph different cultures and different communities? Um, I think, I think it's just more of like, playing to like playing to what you are so there I kind of like use the foreignness or the difference like I was you know I was not from Cambodia so you just kind of like use that as a way to ask questions you know I'm not from here so you kind of get people to to help you (laughs) help you enter whereas here they know who I am and I'm giving like all these indicators and people can read me more so I also play to that here. So it's just more a matter of figuring out, figuring out like what to play to. And in Cambodia, I think it's also great just to find, find a good fixer, um, which here I don't really have to do, which is one of the nicer things of, uh, nicer things of coming back home. It's like, Oh, this is really nice. I can understand everything. Well, you had mentioned earlier that you got that you were awarded something from National Geographic. Can you tell us about how you got that and what difference it made in terms of your career? So I got a Young Explorers grant from National Geographic. And the process of writing the grant was a very, um, I learned a lot just from applying. So I encourage people to apply for these grants. And actually, when I when I was applying for it, I I didn't think that I would, I would get the grant. I, I just, 
I, I came into it thinking, oh, I'm obviously not going to get it. <laughs> um, but I, it was important to me to learn the process of writing it. The one on National Geographic, it's like a two-step process. There's a pre-application, and then if you get that, there's the longer application. So I wrote the pre-application. I got that. And then for the for the larger application, I asked my husband, my boyfriend back then, who's my husband now, to kind of like help me look over it um, because he, he's, he's educated from the U.S. in the U.S. and he kind of like knows what it's supposed to look like for a U.S. audience. That was one of the things that I was confused about when I was writing it. Um, I knew that it was going to be looked at by Americans um, and my, my boyfriend, my husband, um, he, he writes grant, he works at an NGO, so he knows what a grant sh- proposal should look like. So I think that really, really helped me um, asking asking other people to just have a look at it and just edit it as many times as possible before submitting it. And I think, you know, I got, I got the grant at a time when my photography wasn't at the point. I mean, it's, I guess it's never at the point where you want it to be. Um, but I kind of wish that I got it a little at a, a, a bit of a later time. I look at it now and I was like, oh, you know, all these things that I didn't know back then that I know now, I wish I could apply to it. But at the same time, um, getting the grant was really useful because because it was a National Geographic grant. There was that added pressure of making it fit the standard um, or or try to make it fit the standard. So that kind of pressure was really good for me at that time. And it really helped me. It forced me to fast track a bit. And to really like look look at more more and more work before going through the actual field, so that in that sense it was useful. So tell me how your work. What was your work like when you applied for the grant, and how did it change as a result of being the beneficiary of the grant? Before I did the grant, I was mostly I was I was coming from a wire background, so I was. I was photographing more in a wire style, um, and I didn't have any experience photographing stories that took a little longer to shoot and really like staying in it and getting the grant and being given the luxury of time to stay with one project was really, really useful um, in figuring out where I wanted to go next with my photography. I like staying in stories, and I like being able to ask until... I like being able to ask the questions that I need to ask for, you know, a a long period of time. So I think getting the grant really, really helped me in that regard. Um, And it changed, you know, the way I see stories. I'm still, you know, I'm still at a point where, you know, all of this is still quite new. um, And I'm still learning a lot along the way. But it really helped me find what to look at or where to look, what kind of work I want to do. And it helped me refine my choices, because at the time, even before the grant, you know, I was thinking, oh, what should I do? Should I like do travel photography? Should I continue doing news, breaking news? Should I do, you know, even like dabble into wedding and all these things? But getting the grant um, kind of like helped me learn to stay longer with a story. And it really made me appreciate how much you can do when you're given the luxury of time. Can you give me an example of one of the stories that you did while you were under the benefit of the, of the grant that really was sort of a turning point for you in terms of being able to tell a story with photographs? So the grant was on, on changing indigenous cultures in northern Luzon in the Philippines. So 
I, I noticed that there was like an emerging culture that, that fused like the old culture, the, the more traditional culture they had. And then, and I noticed that a lot of them were modernizing, but at the same time, kind of like trying to hold on to this old culture. So I realized that the way they were being photographed before was very much to exotify them as indigenous people. But, you know, you'd go there and I think, I think I, I wanted to do the story because I, I went to this community where everyone was photographing them in their traditional clothes. And then when, when all the tourists left, I saw them change to jeans and a T-shirt. And I realized, <laughs> oh, oh, what's going on in here? <laughs> like, are you just doing this? Do you still actually identify with, with that old culture is, is it a way to make just a way to make money now? So that's what that's what prompted me to start start that story. And, you know, I couldn't answer that. In, in a day, I had to stay. We, we learned much more of these kinds of things. Um, for example, I was able to meet this one Aita in Pampanga. So the Aitas, they, they used to be a mountain dwelling people. Mm-hmm. Um, because, but because the vol- a volcano erupted in the 90s, they were forced to move closer to the city. So they, there they started having access to mainstream media. And we met this transgender Aita, and I think, and to my knowledge, she's the first documented transgender Aita. And you know, if she were still, she were still living in in the mountains, she would not have been allowed to express herself as a woman. And you know, I was able to to stay with Elvina. She she was born Al- Alvin. And you know, you you find all these like little things that you realize. Oh, you know, like modernization isn't always bad. You know, like you have to allow these people to change their culture. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the time, like here in the Philippines, people say, oh, it's, it's really bad. It's, it's so sad. The culture is, is being lost. But, you know, you have to allow them to progress in that way. And so I wanted to be able to document that, that shift. Have you ever had a great idea for a project, an event, or a business and think, man, if I could make this happen, I know it would be a success. I know I have. It's it's the exact experience I had when the idea for the candid frame first popped into my head. And it likely would have remained just that, an idea, if I hadn't taken those first initial steps to make it all happen. Even before I had conducted the first interview and posted it online, the process of creating the show happened in slow, incremental steps. It was just about putting one foot in front of the other. One of those steps was owning the domain name and creating the blog. There was something about making that happen that made me realize that this idea could become a real thing. And you can do that too, and now it's a lot easier to make that happen for yourself than it was for me 10 years ago. That's because Squarespace Start lets you bring those things to life instantly with a simple one-page website created right from your mobile device. After getting set up, you can purchase a domain name on the app, further locking down your idea and setting the stage for something bigger. They can even serve as a holding page until you're ready to build a more robust Squarespace website. Whatever your idea or dream is, why not take that single step today and make it happen and let Squarespace help you to do it. Start your free trial today with no credit card required. Visit squarespace.com and when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. 
you know, when you're choosing to, to follow uh, a subject for however number of days or weeks that you may follow them, you always have to sort of consider the time that you're dedicating to that because you still have to earn a living. Um, mm-hmm. And some of these stories may be um, initiated just by yourself. It's not necessarily that you've gotten an assignment for it. So mm-hmm. tell me how you strike the balance between doing work that you know brings in a paycheck and other work that may or may not do that, but that you're really passionate about photographing. Um, so for me right now, what's helping me pay the bills is actually taking on some commercial commercial work, but commercial work that's still kind of in line with what I want to do. So right now, you know, I'm I'm working with a mobile phone company, for example, that you know pays me to use their cell phone to take mobile images. So sometimes you you have gigs like that that I think you know help pay the bills, and at the same time. You're not compromising your journalistic integrity. And I think as long as you know the divide and I think as long as you know the separation, then there's no shame in it. When I started doing the commercial work, I was really like scared about it. Mm-hmm. I was really self-conscious about taking on things that were too commercial. And I, you know, I still very much think before I say yes to everything. But now it's just sometimes it's really what, what helps me continue documenting my project and as long as I know where the line is and I, then I think it's fine. You, you mentioned your uh, nene, is that how you say it? Nanai, yeah, nanai. Nanai, um, yeah. which is uh, uh, a woman that helped raise you and you, you've mm-hmm. been doing a, a, a photo story on that culture of, of mm-hmm. women who basically their job is to raise other people's children. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us about your relationship with her and also about how that has influenced your take on on that kind of relationship that you're witnessing in, in in with your with your photography. So I grew up with her, so she's actually there since birth, um, and that's why I call her Nanai, which is which means mom. Um, and she actually retired um, just this year, so I, I accompanied her to her hometown. And I was able to see like a different world. And it really, I think, came full circle for me when I finally got to see where she grew up and what she had left just to take care of me. I think that really, really helped me. I mean, having her around really, really helped me um, help form the way I see the world. She, you know, she really loved me and, and she loved me as her as her own and I I went to her house and I saw this photo album and it was just filled with curated photos of me growing up um and you know like her her warmth and her cooking you realize that they're they're really like family to to us or at least I think um for a lot of Filipino families it's it's not I think we hear in the media a lot about the abuse and I think that that's very much important to document. But my own experience was an experience of love. So I wanted to tell that part with her because I always thought that there was never enough. She was never given anything like my my mom always. She always had Mother's Day and my grandparents had Grandparents Day. There was never a chance to really honor, honor how she had raised me and honor what she had given up for me. And I always think that, that that's often overlooked in Filipino society. So I wanted to document that kind of love that was very, you know, you're, you're juggling employment and family and 
and there's a love that that comes out of that that's very unique and in it, its its own form. Um, and I really wanted to be able to capture that um, through my relationship with her and my relationship with the women who worked for for my family or worked with my family. And I I, I really think that that's helped form. What, where I want to go with photography or is helping form where I want to go with my photography. One of the complexities of, of that, though, is, is the fact that many of these women end up leaving their own children in order to be yeah. able to earn a living, to be able to support them. And mm-hmm. they're not present in the same way that they are basically for their adopted children who they're, they're working yeah. for. How did, how did you sort of delving into not only her story, but the story of the, the other women that you profiled, change your perspective in terms of not so much the affection that you had for the woman that helped raise you, but just for just for the entire system that, that, that exists that creates this dynamic where, you know, a person has to direct their attention to someone else's children rather than their own just to be able to earn a living. I mean, I think there's no way to... It's a sad situation, you know. There's no way that that changed for me. That it was, it was always going to be a heartbreaking story. Her son Verong, um, you know, he, I grew up with him. I have photographs with him, but his life is very much different from mine. And I acknowledge that, you know, the life that I've been given is a much more privileged one. Um, just looking at our lives in parallel. And you see that with all the children of the nannies who are with our family. And, you know, some of them even end up, a lot of the women I profile, some of their children would sometimes work part-time in the households while in between jobs. For example, my my nana's son, you know, was hoping to be a seafarer, but he couldn't find a job on the boat. So, you know, for, for maybe... A couple of years, he had to stay in our house and kind of help out um, because there were just no no jobs in seafaring for him. So I think there's just it, it's truly heartbreaking, and it makes me appreciate the complexity of that love even more um, because I think even they they don't. I think you know my my nana really sees me as her daughter too, and I think you know in a lot of ways my relationship with her. Is you know very it, it's so intimate because I had her every day, and her son didn't always have that. He had her maybe in the summers. I think you know that was one of the heartbreaking parts of making the story is is the guilt that comes with it. But I think I just wanted to show that in the story because that's a sacrifice that she had to give, and a sacrifice that I wanted to honor with the story. Well, you, you had mentioned to me earlier that uh, you've moved from, you were living in Cambodia for several years and you've moved back to the Philippines, which has given mm-hmm. you the, the opportunity to, um, you know, photograph the, you know, what's happening in the Philippines, especially now with the latest uh, um, administration with Rodrigo Duterte. Mm-hmm. And uh, t- tell me about what that experience is like in, in being out there documenting what's happening in, in, in the Philippines under these very sort of, you know, controversial circumstances? Um, It's horrifying, really. Um, I was just, well, there's an ongoing um, war on drugs in the Philippines. And so far, I I don't even know the number anymore now, but the last time I checked, there was about more than 4,000 deaths 
um, extrajudicial killings in the Philippines. Um, and a lot of the deaths are, you know, of drug users and small time dealers. And, you know, most of them are poor, you know, in the poor part of the city are poor people. Um, they're tricycle drivers. A lot of the, the, a lot of the bodies that I, I photographed, one of them was, you know, a trash collector. So it's a, it's a human rights problem. So on Monday, I was, you know, I was just there in the police district. And in one night, you know, I saw eight dead bodies. And it's, it's really horrific um, coming home and, and realizing that this is the story that I'm, I'm documenting. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, it feels this is what needs to be done. So, so I think that's a huge part of what pulled me back home. I'm sure it's polarizing for 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 a lot of a lot of people. What are, what are some of the challenges that you face that are unlike any that you've experienced before in terms of being able to document and tell the story? I think one of the main challenges is is talking to the families after and kind of like dissecting uh, the the situation and learning their points of view on it. Um, many you know many of these guys. One of the one of the men whose stories I documented and he, he died, I, I saw his tricycle and it had, you know, campaign stickers for Rodrigo Duterte. I think, you know, it, it's trying to make sense of all of it happening at the same time because most of the families, they, they have like a, a different view on it than I do. So you just kind of have to sit down and listen to them. Um, and also drawing the line, I guess, between documentarian um, and and you know, just figuring out how to how to help them. So, one of the things that I did in this assignment that was, well, I, I raised money to help bury one of one of the one of the guys that I, I documented. And you know, it was like a very sensitive issue because I think some of the journalists here didn't think that that was an appropriate thing to do. Um, but I just I was. I was just overwhelmed mm. <laughs> and, and I, f- I felt like it had to be done. So I, you know, I talked to my editors about it and they were very, very happy to, to support that idea. And so that was one of the things that came out of it that I'm, that I'm thankful that happened that, you know, in some way, like our presence as, as a, as photographers was able to at least, um, you know, help, help a family. Mm-hmm. in a more real way than just getting the story out. You know, you, you've, you, you've been working as a photojournalist, but I know that you've also, you know, bandied the idea of just becoming a travel photographer, mm-hmm. you know, which is, you know, is a lot less stressful, you know. You know yeah. <laughs> but it seems <laughs> like you've explored sort of both facets of your creativity. And, and, and tell me about, you know, what you like about both and why you may favor photojournalism, at least right now, as opposed to, you know, the travel photography. I think um, when I was starting out, um, I think the camera was a tool for me to travel. And now it's turned around. And I feel like travel is more like a consequence of the work. Mm -hmm. Um, If I get to travel, that's great. Um, but when I was starting out, I just wanted to see new things and I was just so excited. And then later on, I realized I was more in love with photography than I was with travel. Um, and that really it changed, changed it all for me. I didn't want to take, I didn't anymore want to take just 
I remember I attended a workshop and I was showing my travel photographs and, and the, and the mentor in the workshop said, Oh, these photographs are just pretty. There's, they're nothing more. They're just pretty. And I think that really, um, changed, changed the way I saw, saw things. Cause I was like, Oh, Oh yeah, he's right. That's really hurtful. But, but he's mm-hmm. absolutely right. Like, what am I trying to say? And, you know, for, that was just in 2013, so um, I think after that, my direction definitely ch- changed because I was really forced to think more about it. So what, what choice did you make differently when you got that feedback? What, what was the decision that you made from then? Well, then I really started to um, want to learn photography, you know, more than just the technical aspects and, the, and um, equipment, learning about equipment and how to take like a perfectly pretty um, like wallpaper image. I started really looking at photography, at um, works of other people that I had really never gone in depth before that. Um, I was looking mostly at, you know, um, just like whatever I could find, but I, I wasn't looking much, much deeper. I wasn't doing the research that I did after that. And it really opened a lot of, a lot of um, windows for me. Um, and I, I got to see different ways of seeing. Um, and I thought that that was a real game changer for me and ultimately contributed in my decision to focus more on the photography rather than, than the travel aspect of it. One of the projects that you're working on right now is uh, a story on to, uh, to become a queen. And yeah. tell us about that and tell us about how this approach that you've been you know, working on developing can be mm-hmm. seen in, in that work. So uh, to become queens is a story of um, two drag queens in Penang, Malaysia. Um, it's not yet, it's unpublished yet, but it's been screened once in the Obscura Photo Festival. So I actually did that story as part of a masterclass with Chi and Sim. And I think that was really, really one of the best decisions that I made this year was to take the class with her. And and it was a, it was a really interesting project because at the end, in the end, the two the two queens became more my collaborator um, rather than just the subjects of the image of the photographs. They really wanted, you know, to 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 show what they had to do. Um, and to what they, the struggles they were facing doing, expressing themselves behind closed doors. Um, and in the end, you know, they came to the screening in, in full drag and everybody wanted to ask them questions. And it was a, it was really nice because then you, you could see that photography can actually be a platform for other people to express themselves. And, and that was really, that was really interesting for me because it was also a sensitive topic you know I was I was afraid that they wouldn't want the images to be shown because of because you know they're not they're not um, quite out yet to mm-hmm. their families but they were very very willing because they knew the intention and they were really excited to be part of it actually and that really made me learn so much about building trust with people and how you know if when you have that dynamic with with the subjects you're photographing then they can become more they can become you know your collaborators and your friends but I remember when I was starting out like one of the reasons I I actually the first person I ever emailed was Amy Vitali oh yeah yeah uh yeah and I was she was the first person who responded to me as well and I was like so surprised that she responded but I remember I was so young 
I asked like like the silliest question, which looking back now is like, why did I ask that? Um, but it's also really telling of what I thought at the time. But I, I, I asked her, is it possible for like a Filipino woman to be like at any like a level of like a good level of photography or for even to get to even get published in National Geographic? So I asked her that because, you know, I was like looking at all, all the work before and, and that was um, I wasn't seeing that much work from from people of my demographic. Well, I'm much older than you and I experience the very same thing, you know, yeah. not seeing myself reflected in, in, you know, in the work that I was seeing out there. So, you know, I think yeah. that, that when uh, that's why I'm excited to have people uh, hear your interview, because I know that there are going to be a lot of people, you know, both men and women, but from different parts of the world that are probably mm -hmm. aspiring to do what you're doing and don't know if it's possible. And I think hearing yeah. someone like you is, is really encouraging. And I think it's, it's really important you know, for, for people like you, even if you're in the early parts of your career to, to be a yeah. symbol for what's possible. So, yeah. And I think it's funny because I, I get like emails from all these like young, I remember I was in, I was, I had that internship with EPA, right? And then I met up with, with the uh, AFP guys after, and then the AFP guys said, oh, we're getting like, like at least like five requests for internships and they're all like young women and they all cited you. Oh, was, like, wow. And it's funny because it's like, you, you don't see yourself as successful, right? You see yourself as like this, I'm just like hustling. I'm just trying my best to be a photographer. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but, but then they, something like that comes up and you're like, oh my gosh, that's a lot of pressure. That's like, like a lot of pressure that's kind of good. You know, you're kind of forced to really like make sure that the work you put out is good. But at the same time, I was like, oh, really? When, when you're out <laughs> there, uh, are there still few um, women? Um, in the Philippines, I think not not as much because uh, sorry, there there are many now is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. um, there are more um, filming. They're not not just in um, not just in photography, but they're in film or they're writers. But, but there are lots of, of women doing journalism here. Actually, um, it's not as rare here. It, when I was in Cambodia, there weren't as many. I think. Okay. But here, p women are very equal here. Which is, it's funny because I didn't re I didn't really like think about like inequal gender inequality until I moved out of the Philippines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're so we're so like empowered here. It's, it's great. That's good. It's like a matriarchy. Yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So, who would that one photographer be, and why? Um, I think that they should check out the work of Filipino photographer Jarek Cruz, G-E-R-I-C, Cruz. He's um, one of my closest friends, and he's a very, very sensitive photographer. And I think that how he approaches work is something that I really, really aspire to. There's just a tenderness in his work that I really love and a way that he portrays um, Filipino culture that I really want to aspire for, um, to be able to communicate that, that sensitivity and that, that expression of Filipino culture in his work that I, I see that I, I haven't really seen much. Um, I really love that. So you should check him out. Jarek Cruz photo. Well, Hannah, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to have a chance to sit down and, and, and talk with you. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Hannah Reyes Morales for joining us here at TCF. You can check out her work by visiting hannah.ph. That's Hannah spelled H-A-N-N-A-H. Remember that you can and do play a big role in introducing others to the work that we do here at TCF. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Thanks to Yaz from Hungary for his five-star review. You can also support the show by making a regular monthly contribution through Patreon. You can contribute amounts of $2, $5, $10 or more or anything in between on a monthly basis and help make a big difference to the work we're doing here at TCF. Your contributions thus far have helped us to improve TCF, including providing us more time to dedicate to the show. One of the things I'm most excited about is being able to increasingly interview photographers from all over the world. Today we heard from a photographer in the Philippines, but we've also heard recently from photographers from Brazil, Mexico, and Germany. And being able to have that kind of diversity of voice has always been a big goal for the show. And you are helping to make that happen. Thank you so much. And lastly, I'm working on joining photographer and fellow podcaster Martin Bailey for his Akaido Winter Landscape Photography Adventure at the beginning of January, and I hope to see some of you there. You can find out more about this wonderful experience by visiting martinbaileyphotography.com or clicking on the link in the show notes. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Our senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>